So you're coaching the CEO to lead in a way that's going to bring out the best of their team and empower their team to empower the next level down. Welcome to CEO Brain Food. Every episode, entrepreneur, CEO, founder, and host Michael Langhout will bring you key insights, fresh perspectives, and proven tools you can apply to your business. Thought leaders and CEOs will be interviewed as we explore winning strategies for scaling a company, generating profits, and building lasting enterprise value. Make sure you listen all the way to the end of the episode to hear how you can download a free copy of Michael's Functional Team Scorecard. Here's Michael. Welcome back to CEO Brain Food. And hey, just a quick note to say that you may have noticed I've been away from the podcast microphone for the last eight weeks. That's mainly due to the coronavirus pandemic. At least that's my excuse. But I'm just trying to sort things out and see what my world looks like uh, going forward, just like all of us. Fortunately, many of my clients are B2B and deemed uh, essential. So the coaching work continues. But Everyone certainly has been affected uh, adversely in one way or another. I hope you're all safe and healthy and and moving on with your lives. I do plan to stay on a podcast schedule for your information each month so that you can expect some really great uh, content, as always, as we've been doing for the last couple of years. We're starting a new podcast season focused on leadership. And I'm really excited about that because it's a big, big topic and so important. Today, I'm excited to have Susan Drum, founder and CEO of Meritage Leadership, which is an executive coaching firm focused on leaders and team effectiveness. So welcome, Susan. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. I'm glad to have you. Susan is a CEO advisor and leadership coach with over 20 years of experience in executive leadership coaching. For the last 13 years, her firm, Meritage Leadership, has worked with C-suite executives from a wide range of industries and companies around the world, some names of which you probably would recognize, big brands like Oracle, Viacom, KPMG in the, in the accounting and, and consulting space. Any Networks, Genentech, and others. So a wide variety of industries. And her background is pretty impressive. Um, I have to tell you, just looking at it, Susan has graduate degrees from Harvard Law, Carnegie Mellon University. I hope you don't mind me going through this for you, Susan. I don't want to put you on the spot. Carnegie Mellon University and the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. Now that's, you don't see that every day. Susan is a master certified coach through the International Coaching Federation. So, Susan, thank you for uh, coming on the podcast uh, today. Thank you. Thank you. It's the topic of leadership is an interesting one to bring all those skill sets together. And that's why I love it. And I love what I do, um, helping leaders be more effective. Oh, isn't it great? And, you know, it's so good, too, when as a professional, you can focus in on one key aspect. I mean, it's such, business is so complex today and there's such a big blue ocean. There's strategy and there's execution and there's management and leadership and all of these different culture, all these different things. But, you know, you seem to be focused in on that one key element of leadership. Uh, but could you start us off a little bit by 
telling us about your company and uh, Meritage Leadership and why you founded it and a little bit about the clients, not necessarily their names or the companies, but the type of client that you're working with? Yeah, absolutely. So the I'll start with that last question. That the the type of companies we work with focus on high growth. So often we'll work with private equity and their portfolio companies because they're looking to really scale in the next five, seven years, sometimes two, three years. And often the leaders were comfortable at the scale that they were bought in, but now they have to scale to something much grander. And do they have the leadership capacity or sometimes this is an example, a private equity firm will bring in a new CEO. And so how can we quickly get the team, the senior team gelled and aligned and build trust in a way that would accelerate and supports that high growth model? Um, Also, we're obviously worked with, with much larger companies as well and helping them create better engagement with, as you get, as you get larger, larger, obviously, things get far more complex. And this escalating complexity is something that we've really focused on and specialized in helping leaders. How do you lead when, you know, it was easy enough when it was 10 people, now it's 50 people, now it's hundreds of people. How do I lead in that environment when it's, I'm working with a team of teams, not just my team, but each of my direct reports has several teams below them. And what's that to lead at that? It's interesting when you talk about the uh, investor, the private equity group, or whoever coming in and, and maybe even replacing the existing team or the existing uh, leader um, with someone that may be a little bit more experienced or, or so on. And I find that, I mean, it's, it's very rare that we get a Bill Gates or a Steve Jobs or a Larry Ellison that, you know, founds the company uh, at, you know, in a garage and, and takes it all the way out to almost trillion dollar valuation. Very, very, very rare. And I find that in, in a lot of cases, uh, particularly in the within the listening group that we have, the founders, the uh, entrepreneurs have enormous energy and they're typically very, very proficient in an area like engineering or say maybe marketing or something like that, finance. But do they have the skill set once, I mean, once they're really on to something and they're scaling, you know, 96% of the companies in the country are under a million dollars. So, you know, you start to get out to 25, 50, 100 million, 200 million, 500 million. Um, the skill sets change. The requirements for the leadership definitely changes because, the, as you point out, the complexity really grows. So I can understand those private equity guys. Uh, they, they want their ROI. And uh, they're not they're not patient, are they? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, there's a timeline and got to produce. Yeah, that's right. So you founded Meritage. What is it? Thirteen years ago. Yes. So and so, what we do is work primarily with the senior team and the CEO. So you're coaching the CEO to lead in a way that's going to bring out the best of their team and empower their team to empower the next level down and get that combination. As you talked about this, this change between the founder and scaling a company, how do we keep the best of the innovation, which is usually what the founder is um, the entrepreneur is bringing and that ability to improvise and turn on the dime, which gets harder as you scale. So as you grow, now we have to be more measured 
but we still want to keep that innovative spirit, but we have to be more measured about what processes we put in place, what we decide to standardize that feels, oh, you know, more corporate. Do we want to go that path? You know, I know sometimes entrepreneurs struggle with putting in systems and processes to make that work. And yet you can't scale without some of that, but you don't want to lose the entrepreneurial spirit as a result. So we work with the senior teams um, to be more effective in that space and also just do general senior leadership development. So working a combination of one-on-one and group. And I think the sort of looking at the system as a whole is very important and looking at the team as a system and looking at the organization as a system. And then people need to do their individual work as well. So they usually are assigned. I have about 13 coaches that we work with and people get assigned a coach as well as we do quarterly or bi-monthly team sessions where we look at how the team's operating. Well, that's great. And I can imagine that I don't know this, but I would imagine that your work is typically showing up, uh, you're working in a boardroom or a conference room, or maybe it's one-on-one in person with the leader. It's, that's how I work anyway as a coach. And boy, this pandemic has sure changed things, hasn't it? Yes, so much of the team to go virtual. <laughs> how has that adjustment been for you as a coach? I mean, obviously now we're in a, in a virtual kind of environment and I think most of the coaches that I know, myself included, have kind of fought that over the years. We really didn't want to do virtual, but we were forced to for the last couple of months. How's that been working for you? I think it's a it's a transition for all of us, all leaders. There's so much you can pick up when you see all the body language in a room that you miss when you just sort of get the headshot window and even more difficult when everyone's little tiny boxes because you have a bigger team or larger organization. And yet it's, I would say, more critical than ever that leaders spend time engaging with their team in this format because people feel isolated. So for me personally, it's been noticing Uh, watching leaders who are able to engage the rest of the organization, noticing what those patterns were, how are they able to do it, and notice those that aren't connecting well and applying that sort of best practices and sharing that across across leaders. Because I think we want to dive right into the work, but this format requires a lot more upfront engagement and trust building in order to get to the meat of the work. And if you're a leader, if you skip that, it's going to be hard to move forward. It's the virtual format you're, you're referring to. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be more prepared. You've got to, and you're right. And in terms of sort of missing with just the headshot, you, you miss the nuances, the body language, sort of the, the connectivity that is in the room that you can't, it, it, when they're not all in the same room, you're talking to people that are coming from their kitchens and their bedrooms and whatever on the zoom call, it's really, really hard to get that dynamic. Yes. And how, how can you build trust in that environment, you know, the way you could in a room? Some people feel even more relaxed, right? You've got the cat in the background and, the, <laughs> and you're sitting in the T-shirt. But others have more of their guard up, right? They're, um, am I being recorded? How am I showing up? It can be exhausting. So how are you as a leader setting the stage so that people are, are engaging as close as they can to how you would have them in, in, in the room? Well, I have to admit, I've cheated a little bit over the last couple of months. I, I office about five miles from my house, and I've noticed uh, that nobody comes to my office. 
So I'm here by myself and I'm feeling fairly safe and healthy and all of that. But part of the reason is because I don't want to have my wife walk by the background in her bathrobe or something, you know, (laughs) I never had to worry about that before. (laughs) Right, right. Well, you could always create one of those virtual backgrounds, although those virtual backgrounds, I think they're sort of funny. They don't quite pick up your head so that sometimes it looks like you've got a very large hairdo (laughs) at times. Or no hair. <laughs> Zoom algorithm has a hard time with the pixelation on all that stuff. Right, it's it's hard. So, uh, but you know, talking about this uh, COVID that we're in now, and hopefully, and by the way, I I feel like the light at the end of the tunnel is getting a little bigger and brighter, and I'm I'm hoping that we can uh, start start to come out of this. One of my clients that I was speaking with the other day. Uh, who I know very well, been working with for several years, was acting a little differently. And I so I paused and, and it was a Zoom call, you know, and I just wanted to check in on that. I wanted to pause our, our work and just ask him. And that got us off into a deep, pretty deep conversation around what's going on. So I paused the conversation and the uh, discussion that we were on, the discussion track that we were on, to really check into that with him. because. It's important to understand that a lot is going on with people beyond just the business, right? I mean, that we all have to manage our families. We have spouses, children, whatever. We have houses we're renting or buying, whatever. We're, we're going around. We have cars. We're going and buying food at the store. We're exposed to this coronavirus thing. And, and, uh, and then on top of that, we've got our business activity, which is completely disrupted and interrupted. And so what I found was a pretty high level of stress and anxiety. And what I was noticing was I was picking up a little depression. And so we, so I, I dug in on that and we, we talked about that. Now I'm not a qualified, I, I don't, that's not my thing. I, you know, but that's why I would have you, Susan. I would say, Hey, call Susan <laughs> because, and, uh, you know, she could help. Uh, but that's the point. I think as coaches, we need to be aware and in tune. I mean, how are you? Are you seeing any of that? How are you dealing with that in this? Uh... Oh, yes. I mean, similar to you, I'm not a psychologist. So, but if we look at this ability to build resilience in times of chaos and change, never more so was that an important leadership attribute than than today. Um, and you know, to some degree, it's the number one skill that's required in being a leader. And it's certainly become a hot topic, I think. Um, And given the current unprecedented levels of change and upheaval, it's really the uncertainty of not knowing. If you don't have the skill set, can really throw people into a state of panic or anxiety, or just, like you said, a low level depression. Because we don't, we can't plan to some degree. We can't plan, or our plans are getting canceled, both personally and professionally. And what's interesting, you know, I was interested in this topic of building resilience actually well before the the COVID crisis, because what I was already hearing before this came was stress and anxiety and overwhelm from some of my clients. And if you think about, we we've been living in a state of escalating complexity, things are happening faster and faster and changes and the magnitude of change is increasing so rapidly. If you just look at plain old disruption that we've been going through. So 
what I was curious about is what makes some leaders able to handle stressful situations more gracefully, while others just get their buttons pushed and become reactive, right, or lash out. And is it innate? Can it be learned? And if so, how? You know, that's a good point. I mean, I noticed that some some are acting almost uh, erratically, like they're on the ragged edge. You know, get a grip. I mean, we got to help them. But like you say, is, are there skills? Are there things that we can learn on how to, um, you know, how to do better with that? Because it's, I mean, it really is affecting everybody. It is. And to your point, like for my own use, if I think about often I have to debrief a 360 report, which has, you know, some feedback that could be triggering to the leader. And sometimes they're, when their ego or identity is threatened, they'll lash out at me. So how can I maintain resilience in the face of that? Uh, and so really, I came at this topic, building it for myself, as I do with many of these leadership topics, and then noticing how, how can I transfer that knowledge to other leaders who may have the pressure of the change or the pressure of the uncertainty, uh, getting the better of themselves and their leadership. And, and, and so maybe it's worth, the thing I found fascinating is looking at the definition of resilience. So, so what does the term mean to you? What, do you? what does that term resilience mean? Resilience? Yeah, to me, it's, uh, it would be the ability to, to handle a changing environment. Um, so, for instance, I'd, I would put that in, in visual terms. I think of, I think sort of visually. <laughs> But I would think like, uh, you know, an accountant, for instance, is interested in rows and columns and low risk. Typically, they're going to want to have uh, all of the green lights on before the garage door goes up. No risk. Whereas uh, some of the CEOs that I know march off into risk like it's taking a shower. I mean, it's no big deal. They're very resilient. They're able to handle a lot of things different topics, different uh, subjects uh, at, you know, almost at once. Yeah, exactly. And I think it happens, it's, it's happening before the crisis hits. So what we wanted to do is have leaders expand their definition of resilience, not only this sort of ability to bounce back, but the capacity to prepare for change, challenge, chaos and adversity so that when they hit you're more unmessable with is a phrase like water off a duck's back right you can keep going and and so you've got to get ahead of it before the change and the crisis hits to really prepare it's a thing of that is an inner battery like is your inner battery full or is it already depleted because if it's depleted it's going to be harder for you to handle the stress and change and uncertainty as a result of that. So the strategies we're using now with leaders are really looking at building that capacity and obviously repairing it uh, given the current crisis that we're in the midst of too. Yeah. And to know when you're at the, that full, when you're at tilt, when you're at the full level, I know I, I uh, was thinking just re- thinking about that as you were talking about it. I, I was in my office uh, not long ago, and it was a time when, when I have some downtime and I'm not coaching with clients, I'm spending a lot of time reading or studying or, you know, preparing for a podcast, for instance, or doing some training on my own self, self training, self help. And I just, it was really weird. I mean, it was like 
two thirty, three o'clock in the afternoon, and I was absolutely physically and mentally exhausted. I mean, I, you couldn't have put one more thimble full of stuff in my head. Yeah, we've all been there, right? Well, <laughs> right. I mean, I would have said no. I don't even remember we talked about that. So I, and I know when I get to that point, and unfortunately, I have to get to that point to make this happen. But I, I put everything down, closed everything up, and I went out and I took a long walk. And uh, that's my sort of my my go to thing when I when I get that way. But you got to notice yourself when you're you know when you're topping off when you're full. Yes, yes. And what what can you do to get ahead of it? But also, what do you do in the moment? What if you don't have twenty minutes to go take a walk? And I think that that's in the moment. How do we handle that stress and change? And and so we integrate some of the heart math techniques. I'm not sure if you're familiar with heart math, but they've been doing research on what builds resilience in human beings and what techniques can we do in the moment to make that happen. And it was interesting because in a recent seminar for those certified in the technique, like I am, they there was a uh, people from the military, people from first responders, chief of police, even ER nurses learning these techniques as well. And I remember one in particular was an F-16 fighter pilot. He was learning these techniques to teach his squadron because, you know, I'm a big believer in meditation and mindfulness and I do every, and I do that every day in terms of meditation. But what do we do in the moment? Like, I can't just go off and go home. Like, if, if I've got a, if I got a stressful situation happening right in front of me, like the F-16 fighter pilot, you know, like the chief of police for all of Colombia, who was also in this. So the, the techniques that we really talk about is like, what can I do in the moment? And what can I practice to prepare for this coming? Um, and so in my practice now, there are techniques that I do first thing when I wake up, I'll do before any kind of stressful situation. And I'll also do before I go to bed. So I'm building the capacity, but then I'm dealing with it in the moment. And I think that, that those, those are the most important um, go-to strategies that I've noticed, those that have to deal with incredible stress. And I'm talking life and death stress in the moment. So if it can be good for them in those moments, it certainly can be good for our CEOs. So how to transfer the solution to that extreme stress from the environment that a police chief or someone that is responding to maybe an accident on a freeway or a hostage situation or, a, you know, a, a, an active shooter, you know, how do you transfer that over to a business situation, which I think the stresses in business can be as and if you let that build up in your body it's lowering your immune system and the wear and tear on your body from the hormones that get released during that stress the cortisol that without being able to replenish really take its toll i, I recently heard a statistic that the average life expectancy for a police officer after they retire is 10 years so you think about that because the wear and tear for such high stress situations that they've had to deal with, the tear that the toll that's taken on their body without the ability to build the resilience can really make a big difference, which is why these these types of professions were there learning the same skills. I've heard it also said and, and have seen it where executives that retire and don't have anything to move into. They they go, you know, play golf for the rest of their lives. Their lives are fairly short-lived. 
in, in many cases, somewhat due to the stress that they've endured through their lives. So I, I get that. So that's um, Heart Math, Heart Math, M-A-T-H, and it's .com, heartmath.com. And the reason it's heart, so I just wanted to explain a little bit about that, is because they they study the heart is actually an integral part of you staying resilient, uh, as it turns like the heart, the physical organ, but also heart the emotions. So it's usually the emotions that could be getting the better of us when we're getting in this out of a state of what they call coherence. So coherence is when the heart and the brain are aligned and working in rhythm. Well, I think what most people think is that neurons only live in the brain, uh, but the heart actually has its own neurons. Literally, you have a brain in your heart, and the heart sends more information to the brain through the nervous system than the brain sends to the heart. So the brain takes its cues from the heart. Research at HeartMath looks at the connection between the heart and the brain and how the quality of the signals that the heart sends to the brain have a tremendous impact in our ability to uh, perceive and perception and emotional experience and our ability to self-regulate as a result of that. So if you're going to get into resilience, you actually have to look at this connection between heart and brain and how that works. Fascinating. And, you know, it's logical. It makes sense. It's an interesting uh, area of study uh, and one, frankly, that I've not, uh, I'm not familiar with. So thank you for sharing that. I want to talk a little bit about delegation, Susan. Um, I know that this is an area of, uh, you know, a, a big area in, in leadership and management. And so often, uh, particularly for those that are, you know, maybe founders or maybe they're, they're new at leadership or, or they haven't really had a lot of experience with delegation. I find that, I, I mean, with, the, with all due respect to the leaders that are listening, Y'all are pretty high on the control spectrum and like to do things yourselves. I'm certainly that way. But couldn't we help ourselves by delegating? And couldn't wouldn't that also benefit the organization and the people that work work with and for us? How do you see that? I mean, how do you factor that into your practice, uh, Susan? Yeah, it's it's you know, there I studied effective delegators and ineffective delegators. And what I noticed is that there were certain mindsets that the effective delegators had that the ineffective delegators did not and vice versa. And it was fascinating because, you know, the way you think drives your actions. And those that were effective at delegating believed many things, but one of which is that my role as a leader is to engage the entire organization and to develop the skills so that what I'm doing today should not be what I'm doing eventually tomorrow. It needs to be pushed down within the organization and I need to empower people to be able to do that and to hold on to it is stunting my ability, my ability to grow my company ultimately. Whereas, and, and, and so as a whole, those that were effective delegators really took a longer term view. And those that were ineffective delegators were more into the short term, right? It gets done right. It gets done on time. It gets done my way. 
and you have the control. And so you get this sort of short term hit that you get, you know, have to get this done, but long term you have to pay a price because if you're doing it, then you're not building an organization that's creating the capacity for them to do it. And there's new opportunities coming down the pike for you. So how are you going to have the capacity to take those on? Yeah. So by not delegating and controlling everything, you're, you're really doing the organization a big disservice. Yes. Right. Right. And I think it is. So we look at sort of the why you need to delegate. So I think you first need to get clear whenever you're taking on a task yourself. Is that is there someone else in the organization that could benefit from learning about this that could do it or maybe give them the chance and they could even do it better than you? Crazy. you know. And then so there's the why you do it. And then there's the how. And I think the how <laughs> we have like a little formula for people to think through. We call it ours, meaning when we delegate, it's an acronym. O-U-R-S. They each stand for something. And when you delegate, did you think about these sort of four steps whenever you get given a task? Because what I found is usually leaders forget, you know, one or two or even three of them when they delegate. And so they get unhappy with the the product that comes back and think, oh, well, I just need to do it myself. Well, maybe maybe there's some work you can do in how you're delegating and you would get you would set yourself up for a better product coming back and not get into the trap of doing it yourself. Well, I know that you've talked a little bit about resilience and now delegation. And you mentioned something earlier. I think it was a tool uh, that, that you use, which is the 360. I think most people are familiar with the 360 feedback. Are there other tools that, sh- that you use to develop, to get a better understanding about what's going on with that person? Like, a, you know, some type of an assessment tool or, or uh, you know, personality. I know StrengthsFinder is another one they've got. The DISC, people use DISC. I'm not a big fan of that. but do you have anything like that that you're recommending or that you use? Oh, yes. Um, so so two main assessments that we use. One is the 360 tool so that we can get feedback from the system about how you're doing as a leader and also see where we have you as a leader also assess yourself so we can see what the where the, the perception lag is, right? I thought I was good in this area, but everybody else's ranking be different. And it's very important to me to have this on a numeric scale, not just qualitative. And, and we've got a database now of over 100,000 100, leaders to compare yourself against, to think about the different leadership competencies and how you're showing up with those. Uh, but the other tool that that I found so impactful, as you talked about DISC and, and some of the others, is the Enneagram. And we apply the Enneagram. It's a really powerful tool, far deeper, uh, in my view, than DISC or Myers-Briggs, to leadership style. So, so there are nine core types of leaders, and each leader has its type of strength and also its blind spot. And where the Enneagram is powerful and why I found it to be a better tool for team development is there are archetypes that are more easily remembered, right? So I can really, as I learn about what your type is, it's much easier to remember and think about that and then think about how I give you feedback or how I delegate as a result of that, then wait, you're an INTP and what do I do with that information? And 
he's an ESTJ and, or even in the DISC thing. What I find is that those tools may be helpful for the individual, but they're not as effective in a team environment as, as the Enneagram. But also what the Enneagram answers is not what you do, which is what a lot of those other things do. It answers a different question, which is why you do it. What is your driver or motivator? Motivation, yeah. Yeah. Because when you can get to the level of motivation, then we what opens up is the opportunity to develop and grow. And I often say, you know, it, it'll it very clearly explain to you why certain other leadership styles get under your skin. You know, there's always like that one or two person that maybe tweaks you or, you know, is, rubs you the wrong way. Well, the Enneagram, the model very clearly articulates why that's happening, but puts a different lens on it as what do you have to learn from that person? Because it outlines the direction of growth for you within your leadership style. So I love it. We've applied it to uh, so many different leadership competencies, you know, delegation based on Enneagram type, how to give effective feedback based on Enneagram type. Um, how to influence and persuade based on Enneagram type. And it, it allows development not to happen in such a one size fits all. But, you know, if I'm going to influence and I have a certain style, I can't just look at my boss and say, oh, do it like him if I come from a different leadership style at its core. So how do I grow um, within my within my style? What is my path of growth, which is different than maybe his path of growth? And probably different than every path of growth for every leader on the team. Yes. In my early days as a leader, uh, I can remember, I would best describe it as a bull in a china shop. I mean, I was just basically telling people what to do. And, and you know, I, it wasn't the best example. And I'm being a little rough on myself, but uh, I was I was probably better than that. But But not really self-aware. And one thing that I found that was interesting was when I started to really get engaged with with other leaders and particularly people that were above me that I reported to, or even others that were on the teams that I was on, getting feedback, particularly constructive feedback or areas of needed improvement was for me a difficult thing. It just put up a defense shield like you couldn't believe. And what I determined after a long time of looking at this and actually having some coaching on it was that I had a very, very high need to be liked. And my giving constructive feedback was very limited. I, in other words, if I had a problem with you, I'd have a really big problem telling you about it. Uh, because I would be afraid that, uh, you know, you might not like me going forward. And I, you know, I see that. And I think that need to be liked needs to be replaced with something like a need to be respected um, or something different. You, you've got to get, you've got to really move past that so that you can actually talk to people. Because I really do believe that once you get to the truth and and you really and and it's i say truth one of my core values is truth and grace right it's like an airplane wing you have you have to have both equal amounts i've tended to be a little heavier on the truth side of things than the grace side of things but uh i think you're going to make more progress if you can be vulnerable and open you know overused words but you know authentic and vulnerable and all that but but just really not beating around the bush and just kind of getting to the issue gracefully because otherwise you're just not going to make progress. And so these companies 
just put up with these low-grade fevers that they've got. They just won't deal with issues. They don't deal with their stuff. And I get into that a lot with my growth coaching. And so you talk about the client pushing back on you occasionally. That does happen where, you know, gosh, are you sure you really want to talk about that in now in this room? Yeah. It's like the 800-pound gorilla, man. We got to get it out and talk about it. Once you do, it's painful, but boy, you really make progress. Do you find that to be the case? Yes. You know, I, I often say to leaders, the data is in the system. The data exists. Do you want to know it so you can act on it? Or do you want to pretend, be delusional and ramp up your delusions? And why, why would we want to ramp up our delusions? So you think about that. Why would a leader want to do that? And at its core is what we call like this reactive stage leadership where you're protecting identity, ego, and self-image over pursuing the mission of your company. So if you notice when you said, well, it was important for me to be liked, that's identity, ego, and self-image. So rather than get the data of what's happening in the system so that you can better operate your company, I need to protect myself because I feel threatened. At, a, at school. And that the, there's a distinction between reactive stage leadership and moving into creative stage leadership where reactive is I got to protect me and all sorts of things. So the, the what you describe as needing to be liked, that's what we call complying tendency, right? I need to be liked so I go along to get along. I don't push the envelope. I don't, you know, ruffle feathers. And how do you work with leaders to transition that to see that actually can benefit them and benefit the mission of the organization. Yeah. And so it takes some courage to, uh, to get into coaching, to hire a coach, to help you. Um, and this is just a message, a newsflash to all the listeners, not a shameless plug for myself or certainly not for, for Susan, but just to be aware, to have the courage to get involved in coaching because you're going to learn a lot about yourself and ultimately you're going to grow. You're going to grow as a person. You're going to be a better leader. You're going to be stronger. You're going to be more resilient. And by the way, all of those traits transfer over to family, friends. Your life just gets better when you deal with your stuff. So as I say, that's not a very professional way of saying it, but, uh, but basically that's what it is. So to the extent that you're able to do that, have the courage to step out and uh, find someone qualified to help you. I can recommend Susan's website, meritrageleadership.com. She also referenced heartmath.com. Have a look. She's got a, Susan's got a great download on delegation. When you go there, you can download it. You have, but you have to exchange something though. You have to give her your name and email address, but, but that's all right. It's a fantastic reference guide on, uh, on delegation. And I think there's also another uh, piece there, a, a place where you can download some more information at uh, meritageleadership.com slash CEO brain food. And you're welcome to go into that site as well, that page, and you'll find some more interesting uh, information. Yeah, particularly on the um, resilience pieces and some of the benefits, because I think it's so timely right now. So we've got a a little, uh, just a short two-pager with an infographic on building resilience, the benefits, and um, some more information that I think will be useful. And that's that Meritage Leadership um, team over. 
you're headquartered in um, in the Arizona area, Phoenix, as I understand, Scottsdale area. But your coaches are they are so you're touching companies all over the place, right? Yes, yes, yes. So generally, I'm on a plane quite a bit. <laughs> Not so much right now, but generally, yes. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what's going to happen to the airlines industry. That's a whole new thing that's going on. Boy, I sure hope we can get back to it at some point. Well, listen, um, Susan, thank you so much for your wonderful uh, conversation today. I've really enjoyed this and uh, it's it's been really terrific and look forward to having you back on, on the podcast. We could talk some more. You've got a lot to offer and we really do appreciate that. So thank you so much. Once again, Susan Drum at MeritageLeadership.com and thank you so much. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thanks for listening to this episode of CEO Brain Food. If you're enjoying the content of these episodes and are ready to get your leadership team aligned so you can scale effectively, we invite you to download Michael's newest resource, the Functional Team Scorecard. This scorecard will help you establish role clarity and accountability on the senior leadership team, engage your leadership team in the financials of the business, and align and synchronize your team around a critical number. Download your free copy today at ceobrainfood.com forward slash scorecard or click on the link in the show notes. Tune in next Monday for another compelling episode of CEO Brain Food.